Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 333. Today's big Bible question is, why did Jesus speak in so many parables? Well, happy Tuesday to you, dear friends. We are two days away from Thanksgiving, and I was reminded today that not only is this the day that the Lord has made, Allah, Psalm 118, but 2020 is the year that the Lord has made. So even in 2020, let us rejoice and be glad in this most difficult of years and thank God for his many blessings. Today's Bible readings include two chapters from 1 Chronicles 19 through 20, also Jonah chapter 3, Luke 8, and 1 Peter 1. Now we're going to be talking about parables today and they are at the front of my mind recently because our church is going through a series on the parables of Jesus First, we should discuss exactly what a parable is. So the Greek word there means to cast beside or to put next to. So what that tells us is that a parable is like an illustration or an analogy that you set beside a truth to help you understand that truth. In the parables of Jesus, there is a certain element of mystery too, almost riddle-like, because the parables are generally not meant to be rapidly understandable. I'm going to say that again because that's probably not what you expect. The parables are not meant to be understood immediately. In that way, they separate those who are really quite interested in truth and the words of Jesus from those who are only superficially interested. They're meant to stop us in our tracks and make us think and consider and ponder and weigh the words. And Jesus would say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear after a parable. And I think that means that not everybody's going to understand the parables. Only some who have ears to hear, spiritual ears, I think. And very interestingly, that is on purpose. It will surprise you to know that Jesus did not intend everything he taught to be immediately understood. The parables are amazing illustrations of truth, and they go well beyond merely a do this and don't do that kind of style of teaching. But why did Jesus use so many parables, like nearly three dozen? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus himself answered that question in various places, including Matthew 13, 10 through 13. The disciples came up and asked him, why are you speaking to them in parables? And he answered, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from them. That is why I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, and hearing they do not listen or understand. Now, this is a fascinating answer. It harkens back to Isaiah, and I also suggest it's very related to John 6.44, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So it is God who opens hearts to salvation, and God who opens ears to the teachings of Jesus. The gotquestions.org team explains it like this. Jesus explained that his use of parables had a twofold purpose. Number one, to reveal truth to those who wanted to know it and conceal the truth from those who were indifferent. In Matthew 12, Jesus had said that when the Pharisees had publicly rejected their Messiah and blasphemed the Holy Spirit, they fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy of a hard-hearted, spiritually blind people. And Jesus' response to that was to begin teaching in parables. Those who, like the 
Pharisees had a preconceived bias against the Lord's teaching would dismiss parables as irrelevant nonsense. However, those who truly sought the truth would understand, says God question. So the second reason that I'd give has to do with the almost riddle-like aspect to the parables. They're mysteries and not immediately obvious as to their meaning. For the second half of 2020, I've taken up a new hobby, metal detecting, or I would prefer to call it treasure hunting. (laughs) I had an old hobby type metal detector before, bought it on a whim on the way to the beach with the kids years ago, but it wasn't a good one, barely used it. We might have found a quarter and a nickel and a dime, a couple of pennies at the beach maybe. Uh, I might have found a few things with it, but I barely used it and uh, it was just in storage. Earlier this year, I got a newer and better metal detector and, you know, got fairly seriously into the hobby as a rank amateur. I gotta say, over the past few months, it's been very fun. I've actually found quite a few interesting things, including coins over a 100 years old and some other fairly interesting artifacts. Uh, Most of the things I've found, I could have bought at a coin store or something like that, but I would have valued that which I bought easily much less than that which I have sought for, dug for, and worked to get. Like, it takes you a while to really understand how to find things with a metal detector, and I put a lot of effort into it. For instance, among my favorite finds are a pair of 1936 and 1940 Walking Liberty Silver Half Dollars, which I found in two different places, two different times. In their current condition, they're probably worth, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 bucks total because they're, they're in pretty good condition. We're like really good, surprisingly good condition. But if somebody offered me hundreds of dollars for them, I wouldn't sell them because they have a different sort of value to me. Now, if somebody offered me thousands of dollars for them, I'll give you my email address if you want to. I'm just kidding. But I wouldn't sell them for hundreds of dollars because, you know, I found them. I value greatly my finds with the metal detector. Don't really plan on selling them, but plan on passing them down to my kids. Now, why would I do that? Why do I value those finds so much? I'm not entirely sure, but it might just have something to do with the effort and satisfaction of having found them. I think there's a very similar dynamic working with the parables. Consider Proverbs 25.2, which says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, and the glory of kings to investigate a matter, or to uncover a matter. I think we can apply this dynamic to Scripture. Jesus has embedded or concealed great kingdom truths in his parables. They aren't immediately obvious for the most part, but for the one who prayerfully studies the word in a deep way and thinks deeply on these things, it seems the truths are revealed much like a buried treasure is dug up. It's a kingly thing to investigate and uncover such things, and a godly thing at times to conceal things. So, the parables, I believe represent concealed treasure. And I think we need to dig for, in other words, listen to those treasures with spiritual ears. Well, here's John Piper on why Jesus taught in parables and why it's so important to listen to the word. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That means it's not enough to have ears on the side of your head. Everybody has those, but there's another kind of ear that only some people have, and those can hear. There is a spiritual ear or a heart ear. There is an ear that hears in the preaching of the word more than mere words. 
There is a beauty and a truth and a power that these ears hear as compelling and transforming and preserving. That's the kind of hearing Jesus is calling for in the parables. That's what this text is about. Then, to stress the issue of hearing even more, Luke tells us how Jesus explained the purpose of the parables in this situation. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant, and he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, hearing they may not understand. It's a shocking word to those whom Jesus has chosen. The mystery of his kingdom is opened, and he gives them the gift of understanding. Verse 10 says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Understanding the kingdom of God is a free gift of God for those to whom Jesus has chosen as his disciples. Now I'm going to pause there, right in the middle of John Piper's quote, and we're going to go read Luke 8, and then we're going to bounce back and get back into what Piper is saying about this particular passage. Luke chapter 8, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Afterward, Jesus was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary called Magdalene. Seven demons had come out of her. Joanna, the wife of Chudza, Herod's steward, Susanna, and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. As a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from every town, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds of the sky devoured it. Other seed fell on the rock where it grew up. When it grew up, it withered away since it lacked moisture. Other seed fell among thorns. The thorns grew up with it and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground. When it grew up, it produced fruit a hundred times what was sown. As he said this, he called out, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. Then his disciples asked him, What does this parable mean? So he said, The secrets of the kingdom of God have been given for you to know, but to the rest it is in parables, so that looking they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. The seed along the path are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the seed on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, having no root. These believe for a while and fall away in a time of testing. As for the seed that fell among thorns, these are the ones who, when they have heard, go on their way and are choked with worries, riches, and pleasures of life, and produce no mature fruit. But the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who, having heard the word with an honest and good heart, hold on to it, and by enduring, produce fruit. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a basket or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see its light. For nothing is concealed that won't be revealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known and brought to light. Therefore, take care how you listen, for whoever has, more will be given to him, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away from him. Then his mother and brothers came to him, but they could not meet with him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. But he replied to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God. One day he and his disciples got into a boat and he told them, Let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they were sailing, he fell asleep. Then a fierce windstorm came down on the lake. They were being swamped and were in danger. They came and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're going to die. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. So they ceased and there was a calm and he said to them, Where is your faith? 
They were fearful and amazed, asking one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him. Then they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When he got out on land, a demon-possessed man from the town met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes and did not stay in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and said in a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was guarded, bounded by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon in deserted places. What is your name? Jesus asked him. Legion, he said, because many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to banish them to the abyss. A large herd of pigs was there, feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the men who tended them saw what had happened, they ran off and reported it in the town and in the countryside. Then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man the demons had departed from, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered. Then all the people of the Gerasene region asked him to leave them because they were gripped by great fear. So getting into the boat, he returned. The man from whom the demons had departed begged him earnestly to be with him, but he sent him away and said, Go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. And off he went, proclaiming throughout the town how much Jesus had done for him. When Jesus returned... The crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Just then a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house, because he had only one daughter, about twelve years old, and she was dying. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. A woman suffering from bleeding for twelve years, who had spent all she had on doctors, and yet could not be healed by any, approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. Instantly her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in, pressing against you. Someone did touch me, said Jesus. I know that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, Your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. When Jesus heard him, he answered it, Don't be afraid. Only believe and she will be saved. After he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying and mourning for her, but he said, Stop crying because she's not dead but asleep. They laughed at him because they knew she was dead, so he took her by the hand and called out, Child, get up. Talitha kum. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. Her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. So, back to John Piper's quote, Why Jesus speaks and teaches in parables. Jesus says in verse 10 that for the Others, the reason for his parables is so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. The issue is hearing again, hearing they may not understand. That means there are two kinds of hearing, one with the physical ears of the head and one with the spiritual ears of the heart. 
hearing with the physical ears, they do not understand with the spiritual ears. And this, he says, is one of the reasons he uses parables, so that hearing they may not understand. In other words, the parables are part of Jesus's concealing and hardening ministry, as well as part of his revealing and saving ministry. The word saves some and hardens some. This hard word is a quote from Isaiah 6, 9-10, where God tells Isaiah his ministry to Israel will not only be saving for some, but hardening for others. God says to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their eyes dull and their ears their, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. In other words, time had run out for these people, and the word of God was no longer effective to save them, but was only effective to render their hearts insensitive and their ears dull and their eyes dim. This teaches us something very important about the preaching of the word. Even when preaching the word of God, even when preaching the word of God does not soften and save and heal, it is not necessarily ineffective. This preaching of the word may be doing God's terrible work of judgment. It may be hardening people and making their ears so dull that they will never want to hear again. There is a judgment in this world, not just in the world to come, says Romans 1.24, and oh, how we should flee from it, which in this text means take care how you hear. Don't be cavalier or careless in the hearing of God's word week after week. If it is not softening and saving and healing and bearing fruit in you, it's probably hardening and blinding and dulling you, says 2 Corinthians 2.16. Which brings us, says Piper, to the last mention of hearing in this text. It comes in a surprising place. I would have expected it to be right after the parable, but it comes in verse 18. So, therefore, the conclusion of the matter, take care how you listen. That's the point of the text, and that's my main point, says Piper. Take care how you hear. Preaching is one thing, and it's important, but hearing is another thing, and it's just as important. There's nothing in this text about the effectiveness of preaching. It's all about the effectiveness of hearing. The point is not take heed how you preach, but take heed how you hear. So, my dear friends, let us be very wise and careful how we listen to the Word of God, that it would not fall on unhearing hearts, but on listening spiritual ears. Let's continue 1 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Sometime later, King Nahash of the Ammonites died, and his son became king in his place. Then David said, I'll show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. So David sent messengers to console him concerning his father. However, when David's emissaries arrived in the land of the Ammonites to console him, the Ammonite leader said to Hanan, Just because David has sent men with condolences to you, do you really believe he's showing respect for your father? Instead, haven't his emissaries come in order to scout out, overthrow, and spy on the land? So David, so Hanan took David's emissaries, shaved them, cut their clothes in half at the hips, and sent them away. It was reported to David about his men, so he sent messengers to meet them since the men were deeply humiliated. The king said, stay in Jericho until your beards grow back, then return. When the Ammonites realized they had made themselves repulsive to David, Hanun and the Ammonites sent 38 tons of silver 
to hire horsemen and chariots from Aram Naharaim, Aram Makkah, and Zobah. They hired 32,000 chariots and the king of Makkah with his army who came and camped near Madiba. The Ammonites also came together from their cities for the battle. David heard about this and sent Joab and all the elite troops. The Ammonites marched out and lined up in battle formation at the entrance of the city while the kings who had come were in the field by themselves. When Joab saw that there was a battle line in front of him and another behind him, he chose some of Israel's finest young men and lined up in formation to engage the Arameans. He placed the rest of the forces under the command of his brother Abishai. They lined up in formation to engage the Ammonites. If the Arameans are too strong for me, Joab said, then you'll be my help. However, if the Ammonites are too strong for you, I'll help you. Be strong. Let's prove ourselves strong for our people and for the cities of our God. May the Lord's will be done. Joab and the people with him approached the Arameans for battle, and they fled before him. When the Ammonites saw that the Arameans had fled, they likewise fled before Joab's brother Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab went to Jerusalem. When the Arameans realized they had been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers to summon the Arameans who were beyond the Euphrates River. They were led by Shophak, the commander of Hadaditzer's army. When this was reported to David, he gathered all Israel and crossed the Jordan. He came up to the Arameans and lined up against them. When David lined up to engage them, they fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed 7,000 of their charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers. He also killed Shophak, commander of the army. When Hadaditzer's subjects saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and became his subjects. After this, the Arameans were never willing to help the Ammonites again. Chapter 20, verse 1. In the spring, when kings march out to war, Joab led the army and destroyed the Ammonites' land. He came to Rabbah and besieged it, but David remained in Jerusalem. Joab attacked Rabbah and demolished it. Then David took the crown from the head of their king, and it was placed on David's head. He found that the crown weighed 75 pounds of gold and there was a precious stone in it. In addition, David took away a large quantity of plunder from the city. He brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws, iron picks, and axes. David did the same to all of the Ammonite cities. Then he and all his troops returned to Jerusalem. After this, a war broke out with the Philistines at Gezer. At that time, Sibachai the Hushathite killed Sippai, a descendant of the Rephaim, and the Philistines were subdued. Once again, there was a battle with the Philistines, and Elhanan, son of Jer, killed Lachmi, the brother of Goliath of Gath. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. There was still another battle at Gath, where there was a man of extraordinary stature, with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in all. He, too, was descended from the giant, when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of David's brother Shimei, killed him. These were the descendants of the giant in Gath, killed by David and his soldiers. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of the walk in the city and proclaimed, In forty days Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. 
When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. The order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil way, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now, for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, But as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Because you have been born again, not of imperishable seed, but not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For... All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. In this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you.
Amen and amen. Well, friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you and guide you. Good day and Godspeed.